You're listening to Fueling the Future of Transport, hosted by Tammy Klein, the founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies. We'll talk all about the fuels and energy it takes to keep the world moving forward. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. I've got a really special show today. I have with me three really wonderful experts in their field, and we're going to be talking about biofuels and the biofuture platform. We're going to tell you what the biofuture platform is all about, but let me welcome guests to the program. First of all, we have Jim Spade, who is with the U.S. Department of Energy's Bioenergy Technologies Office. Jim is the System Development and Integration Program Manager. I'm sure many of you listening know Jim. And Jim is actually serving as the current chair of the Biofuture Clean Energy Ministerial Initiative. So Jim, welcome to the program. And I also want to welcome Dr. Pat Gruber, who is the CEO of Jivo, one of the four running companies that, I mean, doing a whole lot of things, but also in the area of sustainable uh, aviation fuel. And then I also want to welcome my friend, Jerry Ostheimer. Jerry is actually serving as the co-manager of the Clean Energy Ministerial Biofuture Campaign. Guys, welcome to the program. It's great to have you. Thank you. Great to be here, Tammy. Great to have you. So I'm going to go right into the questions, and I'm going to direct the first question uh, to Jim. Can you talk to us about the Clean Energy Ministerial and the Biofuture Platform? What is it? What can it do for governments and also for private industry? Tell us about it. Sure. Thanks, Tammy. So the Clean Energy Ministerial is a high-level global forum that was catalyzed by the DOE and the IEA back in 2009. And it's focused on helping to bring the clean energy future into being. It's a mechanism for, uh, to enable countries to work together in various initiatives and to essentially promote clean energy policies, to share technologies, and to really try to advance the net zero future that we all uh, think we need. And the BioFuture platform in particular is the only clean energy ministerial initiative focused on bioenergy and biofuels, bioproducts, biochemicals. And it was established similar to the SEM in to enable countries to work together to uh, promote any, and uh, speed the development of biofuels, uh, the bioeconomy. And our goals are to try to remove some of the barriers to that development. So we're focused on things like technology cooperation, uh, looking at issues related to sustainability and biomass quantification and promoting policy, as well as trying to uh, make sure that the financial community is very comfortable with bioenergy and bio opportunities to help speed its development and deployment. Thanks, Jim. I want to bring Jerry in here. Can you tell us about the BioFuture campaign and how industries um, getting involved and kind of what's what's happening there? A real pleasure, and thanks again for uh, for hosting us. The Biofuture Campaign is a creation of the Biofuture Platform Initiative that Jim just described. And so the countries that came together to create the Biofuture Initiative always felt that it was going to be essential to engage with the private sector. And so they... Uh, so the, the vehicle for doing that, the mechanism for engaging with the private sector is actually called the Biofuture Campaign. And I have the pleasure of co-managing 
that process with uh, another great guy by the name of Paulo Frankel, who leads the Renewable Energy Division at the International Energy Agency. And so we work to uh, recruit, engage, listen to the private sector, and then really build a strong bridge between the private sector and the countries of the Biofuture Initiative, and more broadly, to um, the Clean Energy Ministry. So Jim, what is DOE's role in the platform currently? And, and what's the platform's key objectives? Anything more you want to add to what Jerry um, uh, was saying there? Sure. The Biofuture Platform was actually established as an independent initiative back in 2016 and led by Brazil with 19 other countries joining them. And the U.S. was one of the original uh, members. And Brazil led that very successfully for five years. And they were looking to uh, help to hand off the role and uh, get some assistance in helping lead the platform. So just a little over a year ago, in June of 2021, at the last Clean Energy Ministerial meeting, the U.S. was nominated to and gladly accepted the chair role of the Biofuture platform. So the U.S. is now leading this group of countries uh, and initiatives in the platform. And so our, our activities are, our, our objectives are to uh, essentially reduce roadblocks to bio, bioeconomy development. In particular, one of our main work streams is focused on issues related to biomass sustainability and quantification. So out in the general world of uh, clean technology, a lot of people are not as familiar with bioenergy and its capabilities compared to solar and wind and hydrogen uh, and some of these other technologies. So the Biofuture platform is also uh, targeted at making sure that there's a great awareness of the opportunities through bio-based uh, resources. And we are trying to remove some of the roadblocks to make sure that uh, there's an understanding that there, there is enough biomass available to make a substantial impact towards a net zero future. And that biomass can be produced sustainably and converted sustainably. And we would only want it to be done under those conditions. So we're working to help share that knowledge and promote a conversation on the topics in particular of sustainability and quantification in the near term. So Pat, I want to bring you in here. So for the listeners who may not be familiar, can you talk a little bit about uh, GIVO, uh, what you all are up to there? You're doing some exciting things in the area of, um, of SAF, sustainable aviation fuels. And I guess for you, what's the draw um, for participating in an initiative uh, like this? Well, uh, I always have to give things a little bit of context because people talk a lot about GHGs without really understanding where they come from. So worldwide, about 70 plus percent come from the burning of fossil fuels for the generation of electricity, for making natural burning of natural gas for heat sources, and of course, liquid transportation fuels for, you know, the diesel, gasoline and jet fuel are all part of that. Agriculture is also uh, has greenhouse gas emissions, but it's actually very, very minor. People, there's lots of hand-waving and hand-wringing and agenda-pushing and all this stuff. And what this really comes down to in a, in a broad way is that we've got to be able to have a fact-based set of decision-making. Um, any of these broad brushes, brushes that say all oh, electricity is good, well, that's not true. We know it's not true. I am, I'm having to build a wind farm for Vivo because I can't get, I got, otherwise I'm stuck with fossil-based electricity. I don't want fossil-based electricity. So 
got to have facts, right? And that's mm-hmm. what's important about what's going on here with Jerry and Jim and the others is they're trying to bring, get everybody to be oriented towards the real facts on the table. Frequently, well, we put a step back. Liquid transportation fuels are going to be important in the future because it's going to take time to build all the infrastructure, right? And yeah, jet fuel, absolutely. yeah, jet fuel, people look at it and go, wow, I think jet fuel is going to be around a really long time. Cool. Well, you need two things. You need renewable carbon and you got to know where that carbon came from. It has to be, you know, you got to know it can't be, you got to know it's sustainable. You got to know what its carbon footprint is. And then whenever you manufacture something, it takes electricity and heat. So where did those come from? And so you have to account for everything across the whole of the business system. This is a very different way of thinking than what's been done in the past. And yet a business like ours, where we're on a crusade to make sustainable aviation fuel and other hydrocarbons and document everything throughout the whole value chain straight through is just a different approach. We need renewable carbon as a raw material. Where are we going to get it? Well, CO2 in the atmosphere is the right place. Okay. How do you capture that the most efficient way? Believe it or not, it's photosynthesis that is the most efficient way. Plants are good at this. Now, how do you get that plant matter and turn it into jet fuel? Well, that conversion is just a combination of biological chemical techniques, and they actually work extremely efficiently. And then there's a question of what's going on and where'd you get the carbon on on growing the plants? Well, if it's agriculture, we run a lot of people just believe agriculture is bad, pollutes the earth. That's not true. It depends. Some mm-hmm. people really, they might, that might happen. Others are superb at it and they're doing sustainable agriculture. In the US, it's called climate smart agriculture. There's a technique that we got to give credit to the USDA or the uh, DOE for doing with Argonne National Labs. They've developed a model called Argonne Greet Model. Mm-hmm. It, is the, it is the gold standard benchmark that everybody in the world uses. Now, the problem is people start morphing it to their own agenda. What we really need is just rock solid data straight through, including the agriculture, including people will talk about, let's use waste feed stocks. You know what? Same rule has to apply to them. Where exactly did you get it in house? There's no game playing because mm-hmm. we're trying to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And so this is just a very different way of going about it. It's being like hypervigilant about documentation as to where everything comes from. And I like this Argon Greek model. And we've worked with uh, Argonne National Labs, and, and just we just are transparent with our data. Jim helped us out through his office of making sure it all got published because we just are trying to set a new standard. The jet fuel is boring in some ways. It's just jet fuel. And so I guess it's a bit of a miracle when you consider that we could do a net zero fuel across the whole of the life cycle, all the way from capturing CO2 in a farm field through the burning of it at a jet engine. It's net zero across that whole cycle including your production, right? You know what that means? When it's sitting in our plant in a tank, it's like minus 100, meaning it's negative 100. Right. You put it, it goes back up. So it's really quite miraculous as to what can be done here if we're, if we're focused on it. So what we're really trying to do is show people what can be done because we can, we can make a difference. So uh, talk to me a little bit more about your outlook for um, SAF um, in the U.S. I mean, you just signed this amazing deal with American Airlines. I feel like I'm reading an announcement coming out from you guys pretty much like every, (laughs) if not every week, definitely a couple of times a month. There's a lot of exciting stuff going on there. We now have an Inflation Reduction Act. Well, 
almost. So I kind of sort of, <laughs> at least through the Senate, um, it looks very positive um, that it will uh, pass the House. There's some there's some there's some stuff in there for for SAF. What's your outlook um, in the next few years for for the industry in general and also for GEVO? So, you know, the, the liquid fuels markets are enormous in all cases. What's interesting about it is now we have 350 million gallons of jet fuel signed up with customers like Delta, American, all the rest, Alaska. And these are take or pay kind of contracts. What that means is if I make it, they're buying it. The reason that that's important is that helps us get financing and gain mm-hmm. financing in debt. Mm-hmm. So this was a really quite the big change over it from what's been in the past. Mm-hmm. The lines are going to put up their balance sheet or letter of credit to back it. That's a big deal, right? That mm-hmm. helps go ahead and get financing because there really is new capacity has to be built and it's capital intensive. The investment we're going to make in our first plant, it'll be in Lake Preston, South Dakota. We should, we're going to have the groundbreaking in September. And uh, that's going to be over a billion dollar investment on a fully financed, fully installed basis. It'll make 54 million gallons of SAF. It'll make another six, seven million gallons of diesel and jet fuel or diesel and gasoline. But these are enormous capital investments, yet they're profitable. And what's interesting about this is the airlines buy into it because we share some of the green value with them. Mm-hmm. That helps to offset the increase of cost that we would charge. And so we share it. And the, this is a really fundamental principle of sustainability. You have to share equitably across the whole of the value chain for everybody. This mm-hmm. is a really fundamental point. Otherwise, you don't get the right behaviors. Right. So this is why I think what we're doing is a little, it's a different kind of business system. It isn't trying to put all the money in our pocket. It's trying to make sure we make enough money so we can get investment, both equity and debt. But then also make sure everybody else makes money fairly along right. the way. So we need so everybody to continues to grow. We right. have to. And that's what you're seeing and why we're getting so many contracts is because we've taken this approach. And what I like is these airlines, they, we just had Delta up uh, at our site in Laverne with their customers. Think about that. Mm-hmm. They're bringing their customers to our plant in Laverne and we take them out to the farms to go meet farmers. And so they can see how stuff actually is grown versus what's talked about in DC. Yeah. And so that's all part of this is to show it is not business as usual. We can change things, but, and it's big, we got to work together and we have to count, account for it accurately and then build that into policy correctly. Right. right. So Jim, I want to bring you back in here and just ask you, what's your outlook for, um, for SAF or uh, on behalf of, of DOE? And what about other advanced biofuels? Because to me, it seemed like, you know, there was this, this valley of death, <laughs> Um, but you know, now you're starting to, in terms of the R and D and development and, and scale up, but now you're really seeing, you know, there's companies out there, there's Jibo, there's Lanzatech, there's Velocis, um, there are others that are, you know, Red Rock, there are others that are, that are out there that are really sort of, um, you know, really emerging and really beginning to, to scale up. So what's your, what's your outlook? Well, I would add beyond in addition to the U.S. companies that you just named, there is tremendous interest globally in sustainable aviation fuels. I had the opportunity just last week to be in Japan, where they've also developed their own roadmap for sustainable aviation fuels. But their, their investments are fairly uh, pretty much in the early stages. And they're looking to the U.S. to look at our example and see what we're doing. And uh, the U.S. has also developed its own roadmap for aviation that we hope to release in the very near term. 
But uh, we think sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF, offers a tremendous opportunity to decarbonize aviation. There are other elements to decarbonization of aviation, including technology and efficiency improvements of the aircraft itself, as well as the engines. But it's the sustainable aviation fuel that is viewed as essentially the biggest hammer to be able to make the biggest difference over time, between now and 2050, that the fuel itself is a huge uh, element of the carbon footprint and reducing the carbon uh, impact of SAP is going to make a tremendous difference overall for aviation. So the US is very excited about it. We've articulated what we call the grand challenge, which is to produce 3 billion gallons of SAP by 2030 and 35 billion gallons by 2050. And so that 3 billion gallons would be approximately 15% of our current usage just within the US. But the 35 billion gallons, very importantly, is targeted to be all, to replace all of the aviation fuel that we currently use to completely eliminate fossil-based aviation fuel by 2050. And beyond aviation fuel, there are other opportunities for biomass, bioenergy bioproducts. There are other heavy-duty transportation applications mm -hmm. like marine and heavy-duty trucking. We're looking at those as well. And in addition, bioproduct opportunities are very attractive and can offer perhaps uh, more attractive gains in the near term, sometimes smaller markets, but uh, greater return on investment. So the DOE is investing in all these things, but at the moment, our highest priority is really SAF. Hmm. Interesting. So can you talk to us a little bit about how the DOE actually views its role in the bioeconomy, you know, especially in transport energy. I mean, you just talked about, you know, you, you view, uh, DOE views, you know, it's fundamentally important, you know, SAF. Um, what about, you know, how does it view it in light of other technologies that are scaling up? I mean, especially, you know, electrification, like in the light duty fleet. So how does, how does DOE view its role there in the, in the bioeconomy? So transportation accounts for about a third of all of our GHG impacts. Yep. And uh, previously, previous to say the last few years, we were focused more on light duty vehicles. But we have seen we have seen the future, and we think that uh, the future for light duty vehicles is electrification. The DOE and governments all around the world are investing in electrification, and so we've realized that a much greater opportunity for impact from biomass resources is sustainable aviation fuel and some of these other heavy, harder to electrify applications. So it's very much an, an all of the above approach. We need electrification. There'll be a, lots of opportunities for hydrogen mm -hmm. and um, even powered liquids in the future. Yeah. But in the very near term, we think that sustainable aviation fuels is the best place to make our investments. And out of the DOE budget, we are out of the bioenergy programs budget. All of our uh, program areas across the board are spending approximately 75% to 100% on technologies that can go towards helping develop sustainable aviation fuels. So some of those are in earlier stages of R&D, but we are trying to ramp up our portion of the investment in the scaling technologies. So starting to take these technologies off of the lab bench do the initial integration, getting mm -hmm. them through piloting and demonstration, and getting them ready for a complete commercial handoff out to industry and uh, getting them deployed. Yeah. There are a few staff technologies that are already commercial, 
but there are others, many others that are in the developmental pipeline. And the DOE sees its role as to help bring along these other technologies, help them develop, uh, de-risk de some of the technologies and contribute mm -hmm. to their development because it is expensive. It's a major investment. And we need many different conversion technologies and many different biomass resources, including CO2 from the air, right. to reach the goals, the volumetric goals that we are seeking. Yeah. So, Jerry, um, Pat talked a lot about um, carbon accounting, um, the need for fundamental, um, you know, sort of a equivalent base, baseline, uh, if you will, you know, working from a baseline set of <laughs> assumptions, so on and so forth. Can you talk to us a little bit more from your perspective as the manager of this, this platform about carbon accounting, you know, what we can do about it um, and um, how this will be handled sort of in the, in the campaign? Yeah, thanks, Tammy. I, if, if you hadn't asked that question, I was going to push my uh, discussion <laughs> in that direction. So. Pat, Pat is a uh, is a leader and a deep thinker on this, and and he's not alone, fortunately. And so the the process of developing the campaign actually started uh, over two years ago, actually, and it started with a series of conversations. And we talked to everybody from integrated oil companies to venture funded firms, and everybody, uh, you know came back with a similar answer, which is related to themes that have been a part of the renewable fuels and chemicals space for a long time, which is basically, how do we get credit for being green? You know, because if at the end of the day, you produce a molecule that is chemically indistinguishable from a fossil-based molecule, where does, where does the, the value come, in, come from? And where I think a lot of people have landed is that there is this social valuation on a desire to defossilize, mm -hmm. right? And so people value that. And so the question becomes valorizing that. And so now you get into broader questions around, uh, you know, carbon taxes and cap and trade and, 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 and sort of big, big economy-wide questions. But I think maybe one of the reasons that we haven't actually gotten there yet to where we have these big economy-wide questions is because we haven't, we haven't necessarily fleshed out the basic accounting so that we can actually do a genuine apples-to-apples -apples comparison uh, across sectors. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just a function of comparing a fuel molecule to a fuel molecule. So we're not going to just say even between molecules, say between gas, gasoline and ethanol and, and getting an understanding of where all the, the contributions are. If it's a, if it's a uh, gasoline where the molecules were, uh, you know, the carbon was actually captured by a plant or whether the, well, it was captured by a plant recently or if it was captured by a plant hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of years ago, a fossil. So, so, so what has happened is that industry, you know, paying attention to society has landed on the value, you know, generating a value and tracking the value of um, uh, replacing fossil carbon. 
And so this, it's, it's been uh, universal. And whether it's a company that's producing a renewable chemical, whether it's a, a company that's producing a renewable plastic or a company that's producing a renewable fuel, this all came from them. And so what we want to do is we, you know, as, as Pat said it really nicely, it's a new way of doing business. It's a new way of thinking. It's a whole new way of approaching problems. So this requires leadership and communication, and it requires a stage, it requires a platform to do that level of communication to, and to engage different people that may or may not be aware of all the progress that has been made. And so that's why we look to the Clean Energy Ministerial, right? So as the name says, it is an annual meeting of ministers, energy ministers from around the world, or in the case of the U.S., the energy secretary. And it's the only time that they get together annually to talk only about the clean energy transition. And this is, uh, it's, it's like the G20. So it's that, it's more of a developed country situation, but we do have also Indonesia and China and Singapore and South Africa and Saudi Arabia, UAE. So it's, it's, it's the G20 plus. And it is an opportunity, and Jim alluded to this too, where Japan is just starting down this path. Mm -hmm. And so the Clean Energy Ministerial gives us a chance to harness not just government-to-government dialogue, but government-to-industry dialogue. And so industry has really rallied to this. Um, The next meeting is coming up in Pittsburgh, um, the third week of September. So the 21st through the 23rd of September in Pittsburgh. And uh, we're all actually all of us are working super hard to make sure that we get our message right and that we develop the, the, the right environment so that ministers that might actually be skeptical of bio based products get to see them in a new light and get to hear them in a new light. And then, as Jim said, for us, it's about building a lot of confidence and it's a lot, it's about building a lot of trust. And so, as Pat said, it's about getting to the data and getting to the evidence and not being shy about focusing on the benefits, but focusing on the risk profile as well. And so taking all of those aspects of sustainability, but realizing that we've been doing this for a decade and a half. Well, we, some people have been doing it for multiple longer. decades. Longer. <laughs> for longer, but at least in terms of U.S. legislation, mm-hmm you know, at minimum 15 years, depending on which um, RFS you want to look at. Mm-hmm. And we've learned a ton. We, we, are, we are working our way up the, the learning curve. And as we do, our emissions get lower and lower and lower. So we want to tell that story. We want to raise awareness. And the Clean Energy Ministerial really provides a very unique opportunity for industry and policymakers to directly engage and I'd like to just make two more points. Mm-hmm. One point, uh, at least in this part, one point is a lot of people could be familiar with, say, the UNFCCC. Some people that are more in the fuel space are probably aware of the International Civil Aviation Organization or the International Maritime Organization. These organizations are treaty organizations. At the end of the day, they produce very difficult to achieve international agreements. Mm -hmm. And then countries have to abide by those agreements. 
The clean energy ministerial is not meeting to hammer out an agreement. What we're meeting, we're, we're, the, we're the photographic negative. We're the opposite. We're a bottom-up activity. We're about bringing together uh, real leaders and communicating and showcasing what they've done. So it's sort of like the tour, you know, of uh, that um, Pat was giving, where, you know, we really point to the real world solutions that are available now and um, available in the future. And so we're very, pro- I want the point I want to make is we're very project oriented. So this is not about getting together, just having a conversation. It's about driving results. And the other thing is, it's not just about meeting once a year. This is this is ongoing work, partnerships between countries, partnerships with industry that is ongoing work throughout the year. So next year, we'll be in India. But mm-hmm. this year, we're in, in uh, Pittsburgh, uh, in Pennsylvania, in the United States. And in between those two meetings, we're going to get a lot done. We're very excited for the things we're going to announce in Pittsburgh. And we're very exciting, excited to show the progress that we're going to make for next year. So I want to go back to, to Pat. Um, you know, there's an event, um, and I think I'm going to talk with Jim and ask Jim about that um, in, in a minute. But, you know, there's an event coming up in New York. There's an event coming up in Pittsburgh. Um, Jivo is involved um, in this campaign. What do you hope um, to achieve? What do you or what does Jivo want to walk away having achieved um, and accomplished um, at the end of these meetings um, in uh, September? And then, yeah, going forward into the the ongoing work that uh, that Jerry mentioned leading up to the meeting next year. Yeah. So what what we're going to try to do and, and we've got we're going to try to get people to think differently. And this is, you know, because people believe, oh, food versus fuel. You mm-hmm. can't do both. Well, that's not true. You, The two most productive crops for generating protein for nutrition are corn and soybeans. Oh, with corn, you get carbohydrates too. People don't think of it that way. They just think of it as a simple answer. They don't realize only 1% of corn is actually used for food directly. They have no idea. So part of it is educating people and then te- and teaching about how things can be done more sustainably because the world has changed. All the rhetoric is lags like 15 years. Mm-hmm. So bringing it up to speed. And then this really important thing, the actual real footprint as we measure stuff, it is even if you use crappy numbers for agriculture, it's still about electricity and natural gas. That's what causes the big footprints for everybody. Mm-hmm. And so this is an infrastructure issue. It's about, you know, how to think differently about that. Yeah, we got to get our, my agenda is the same as EV guys. I get the same problem I do. We need green electricity. Oh, I need green biogas. Well, that's the same as the green hydrogen people. Oh, wait, I'm making green hydrogen too. So, and I need a little bit. So we'll make extra. So it's just a very different thing than everyone likes to think about it in these discrete buckets. And then they, they use these, you know, extreme words to describe it. All cars have to be EV. No, they don't. And they won't. It's and they're not going to be. Yes, absolutely. And, not, transition yeah. or, and, yeah. and so it's about how do you do this systematically? And our fundamental issues are the same. We burn too much fossil fuel. That's the fundamental issue. And we mm-hmm. do it through, you know, electricity, gas, and then liquid transportation fuels. Cool. We have technologies that can substitute those. And this thing that Jerry mentioned is exactly right. We start off with the things that are available today so we can get started. 
But you know what? Once you know how to measure things and account for them properly, like people have wanted to do say a six for years, the DOE has sponsored, sponsored lots of projects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The problem is if you're just trying to do off some new technology around a new feedstock and you're trying to say make ethanol, that's hard because ethanol's got a limited market in the first place. Here, we don't have that, but we'll also have a system that can take in those carbohydrate feedstocks and we can price them end value on their sustainability, which is an important part because I don't want a cellulosic wood-based feedstock, for example, if it, is, if it isn't proven to be sustainable. I don't want it. My customers will not take it. So it's the same rules apply for everybody. And that's what's important about the work that's being done here. And this is a very different paradigm than what's been talked about. People want simple things and don't want to talk about the whole systems, but this is to solve greenhouse gases. It's a whole system approach. That's just the reality of it. And, but you know what? We're getting it figured out and bringing people along and, and it, and it works. And there's all kinds of new techniques. We have this technique called Verity tracking. It's a blockchain tracking Mm -hmm, technique mm -hmm. we're developing and it's going to go measure field by field, all the data, attach it to it, blockchain style. So wow. And there is no question as to yeah. where the heck this stuff came from. It yeah. will end the dang debate and I can prove it. And, and so now we won't have. And you can monetize it or, or the farmer can monetize it. That's right. And it'll be immutable yeah. and all the rest. And the point is, is the only way that I think we can solve the problem and stop with all the backbiting that occurs throughout the value chain. Otherwise, is just get the dang data, document it, prove it and stick it in people's faces. It can't be denied. And that's how you right. win over time. Plus then make cost-effective fuels that work really, really well, which we also can do. Right, right. Yeah, it's so- If if I could, Mm -hmm. I want to just add something to what uh, Pat was just saying. Um, Pat was talking about the the synergies that occur between green electrons, green hydrogen, biomethane, et cetera. It's hard, like everybody working in all of those sectors has their eyes on the prize and they're focused on getting plant zero, getting plant one, getting their getting their projects moving forward. But there's a few people that are seeing, as Pat described, the interconnectedness of it all. And I just wanted to highlight, so the Clean Energy Ministerial, I, I don't think we've emphasized this, the Clean Energy Ministerial is the whole clean energy spectrum. So they have they have 18 or so, 16 plus different initiatives that are working on everything from gender equity to electric vehicles, to CCUS, to Mm -hmm. green hydrogen, to hydrogen, et cetera. And so the SEM today, we want to use to educate people about the bio sector commitment to accounting and sustainability and and transparency. So a word that we could be using a lot here is transparency and evidence-based and science-based. But you don't have to look too far over the horizon to realize that the SEM is a perfect platform to bring together the hydrogen people and the CCUS people and the power to X people and the bio people so that we actually generate that circular carbon economy that deep down we know that we need. So thanks for that. On, On a global basis as well. What I think is really exciting about what you're talking about, Pat, is I mean, I think, you know, a lot of folks, I question this on the on the Enviro's side because they're the ones that have been most skeptical about 
you know, does it reduce greenhouse gases? No, it's not. It's not. Let's just electrify everything. Let's do, let's do all EVs. But it's like, you know, have you ever been to a farm? You know, (laughs) you know, and I just think like to get, to give the farmer, you know, to be able to, again, like to, to measure. And I know RPE has been doing uh, some studies and some research in this area. And to me, it's really exciting because, you know, a lot of farmers out there, you know, suffer. This gives them, you know, uh, a buy-in, you know, this gives them a, a pathway to, you know, to participate um, in this, in, in this, in this, in this bioeconomy that, you know, they might not have had, had access or been able to uh, before simply because they couldn't quantify. So to me, this is all, it's really, really exciting for that. It's another win, win, win. And that's, you know, part of the sustainability question, you know, is the economic question. That's part of it. And so, yeah, it's just, it's exciting. Well, I'll tell you one thing that's interesting is an underutilized resource is the soil of our farmers for capturing Mm -hmm. carbon. So if you do this with you, you, low-till and no-till techniques, Mm -hmm. the wood systems intact and they build up soil carbon over time. And so Enviro's and it's like skeptical people say, well, what happens if they plow it someday? Well, you know what? You might It might go backwards a little bit. But you know what? If they go back to the normal techniques, it, then it builds it up again. Conventional tillage does e- release CO2. There's no question mm-hmm. about that. And so, but it's not absolutes. Not it's So how do you do it? How do you document it? How do you measure? How do you establish what's real? But think about it. We got 200 million acres under that are in conventional agriculture. All of them can be used to greater and lesser degrees for capturing mm-hmm. carbon if we wanted to. Yeah. And yet people say, well, no, no, we're going to just ignore that. Well, this is part of the problem we have. The, the simplest, easy hand-waving thing is to just simply ignore it. The other one is there's a thing called indirect land use, which is a huge fight. It was, a, it was an argument that was put forth yes. years ago. Yes. And now there's enough data that's published that shows that theory is wrong. It's just plain wrong. The And it's it's off by orders of magnitude uh, of what it could be. And there's tons of data available that show mm-hmm. that. Yet, that's not the talking point that's popular because it's convenient on the environmental front because it allows people to say, well, no, liquid biofuels, you know, are a problem. And so this is all about education. And the way to do it is just get the facts, document them, use the model. Like we are huge, everybody uses the Argon Greed model mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the foundation. And then they... If they just stick to it with good fidelity, we're all in good shape. And if they use the USDA data, which I like, it's even better. You know, that's that's how it works. That's what they've done. But what happens is people start going, oh, I'm going to throw that out. I'm going to change this. I'm going to change that. And then they say, well, you know, it's an Argon Greek one. Corsia did this, by the way. Mm-hmm. They did this. You can't mm-hmm. use agriculture products or uh, sequestration. Well, that's stupid. Mm-hmm. The, the IRA bill is funding sequestration they're funding climate smart agriculture what and the other side of the government's not supposed to use it what right, what's right. wrong with this world so these are the kind of things that we get you know, fired up about and have mm-hmm. to continue to preach about and the way to do this is this group they put together this ministerial thing is a large part about educating people look at our customer base i got people in europe now mm-hmm. japan in the u.s all of whom understand it's corn as a feedstock. The reason that they can buy into it is they see what we're doing in that we're separating the protein and oil supplying to the food chain. We're we're all over the sustainable agriculture and they can go meet our farmers, our partners, 
who we believe should be paid a premium for doing a good job in sustainability. Mm-hmm. I and, agree. They're in it, and they're in the game with us now. They're mm-hmm. in our, they're going to participate with us to try to change the world. And that's yeah. what I like, because it really is a powerful thing when you get people aligned. Yeah. yeah. So Jim, last question uh, to you. So can you talk about the actual events that are planned for the Global Clean Energy Action Forum and, and also what the BioFuture uh, Initiative focus will be over the coming year leading up to those meetings Jerry talked about in India? Sure, thanks. I would like to start with talking a little bit more about the bigger Global Clean Energy Action Forum. Sure. So we've talked about the SEM, and the SEM is focused on deployment, getting those technologies out there. <clears throat> but the complement initiative is called Mission Innovation, and that's focused on the earlier R&D. So this is a joint meeting of the SEM and the Mission Innovation, and they've called it the Global Clean Action Forum because they want it to be a showcase of actions, not just talks, talk about what might happen in the future or plans, but to really showcase the actions that are occurring right now in all these different technologies. And further under the STEM, they have articulated this as the decade of action, the decade for action. So we really need to make progress. Everyone is aware of the challenges of two degrees C and 1.5 degrees C and the scare about can we even make those. So uh, this is really the decade for action. And further, the Biden-Harris administration has articulated among its clean energy goals to focus on deployment rather than R&D. They want to speed action and speed results. So just as a background. So the BioFuture platform lives within that clean energy ministerial set of initiatives. It's the only one focused on bioenergy. But at the SEM, we will have a number of different side events. The first is broadly focused on bioenergy, not just SAP, but many challenges of bioenergy are very similar to the challenges we have on SAP. Questions about sustainability, the availability of biomass, uh, the need for policy, and the need for investment. So in one of the first events will be what we're referring to as a CEO minister roundtable. So it'll be a relatively small, intimate event where the ministers can offer their views of bioenergy and its importance in their countries. And the CEOs, like Pat, have the chance to talk about what's on their mind. What are they investing in? What are their goals? How do they need help from the government? And for all of this to be on display, that this is not just a U.S. problem or a problem in any one nation. This is really a global problem, and we're talking about global industries and global markets, uh, as well as the CEOs and ministers will have some NGOs in the audience and some enviros, and uh, really a mixture of, of different uh, constituents, stakeholders, to have a, a broad, intimate discussion. So that's number one. Uh, number two I'll talk about is, Jerry described it, an event on carbon accounting, and to discuss how we can work together to make more progress on that very challenging topic. And Jerry's described it in quite a bit of detail, so I won't go into that anymore. But then we have a few other events focused specifically on SAF. Mm -hmm. And at the SAF events, we are hoping to have a a pretty major government, U.S. government release uh, that I can't really talk about now, but we're hoping we'll have some really exciting uh, progress to talk about. And then it'll be, again, it'll be ministers, uh, CEOs, uh, investors, et cetera, and uh, it'll be the opportunity for other companies to talk about their progress, their needs, their, uh, their challenges, uh, how the government can help them, how they can work in a larger global community. And uh, I also want to mention that the SAF event we are doing in partnership with the World Economic Foundation. 
and no. RMI and Clean Skies tomorrow. Right, the World Economic Forum. Sorry, Jim. I'm sorry, World <laughs> Economic Forum. Thank you. So it's really going to be a tremendous uh, bringing together of different groups that are very active in the space that uh, collectively, the more we can work together, the more we can be impactful. So uh, as well as the SAP event, we plan to have an event focused with investors on the challenges and opportunities in, in SAP and other bio uh, opportunities. So we'll be helped there by the Loan Program Office and the new DOE Office of Clean Energy Demonstration. And we think that'll be a, a great conversation, an opportunity for CEOs to ask questions, to learn, and investors to talk about what their concerns are. What do they need from developers to be confident to invest? Right. So we think it's going to be a very exciting set of, uh, of events, very interesting dialogue, and we hope you can all join us. The registration is free. I don't think there's much of a limit on attendance, and we hope to see you there. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jim, Pat, and Jerry for coming on the show and talking to us about uh, these important events. I think this is so uh, critical because, you know, as much as we will have electrification, that's all in the news, as much as we will have hydrogen, we, we do need that bioenergy piece. I'm really convinced in my own work that this is, this is necessary. It's necessary for the West. And I think it'll be even more critical for uh, parts of the world in the East and in most especially in Africa. I don't think people really can conceptualize the fuel demand across the board that's coming in Asia and Africa in the coming years. And um, I don't know that those areas will electrify so quickly. So we really will need um, global solutions and a, and a global, global bioeconomy. So thank you all for joining. Great to have you and good luck in New York and Pittsburgh. Thanks a lot, Tammy. Thank you. You've been listening to Fueling the Future of Transport. This show is hosted and edited by Tammy Klein, produced by Carolyn Schneer, and engineered by Alexander Nikolic. To hear more great episodes of this show, learn more, and sign up for a free bi-weekly newsletter, visit transportenergystrategies.com.